Hi there, Pastor Lars Hammer here from Lord of Grace Lutheran Church in Marana, Arizona. I want to welcome you to the first of my uh, short series of little live stream classes I'm going to be doing on uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's idea of a religionless Christianity. Uh, I've been a fan of Dietrich Bonhoeffer for many, many years. He was a Lutheran pastor, he was a theologian, and not only did he write some wonderful books like The Cost of Discipleship and Ethics that I certainly encourage you to check out and read, but he ended up uh, going to end up going to the U.S. and doing some teaching and then returning back to Germany and joining a plot to kill Adolf Hitler. And when he was discovered in that plot, they sent him off to the Tegel prison in Berlin, Germany, where he then spent about the last year and a half of his life. And he ended up being executed within a few weeks, actually, of the war ending. But he wrote, during all this time, several letters from prison. And a lot of them, of course, as you could expect, are kind of family things. How's mom and dad doing? How are the kids? Uh, how's my fiance? Uh, but a lot of them, as he got farther on, were more reflective, more theological. He was a theologian. He was, kind of, he was very kind of a heady intellectual in many ways, too. And so he started formulating this idea of what Christianity would look like in lieu of science, in lieu of World War II, in lieu of the cultural changes that were going on in Europe and in the West at that time. And he started formulating this idea of a religionless Christianity. He never finished it exactly, and so we don't ever have all the answers to what it would look like, but he poses a lot of questions. And that's why I thought I would do a little series here for you, uh, just to help pose some of these questions. I'll give you some of my thoughts, some of my commentary as we read through some passages from uh, his letters that he did. What you're hearing now is an introduction that I had to re-record because apparently when I live streamed earlier, we ended up with three and a half minutes of no audio at the beginning. So my apologies for that. So this is a uh, reintroduction. I'll stitch this onto the original live video rather than re-recording the entire thing. So I hope it won't be too jarring, but I hope you'll enjoy this and I hope it'll be a good, uh, raise some good questions for your thoughts about the church and life and faith in our new world. So here we go. And he's not the first person to want to say, let's sort of recreate Christianity in its original state. But he doesn't talk about like going back to the first century. We're going to go back to the catacombs and do it the right way. He's really exploring the idea of Christianity in this new world. And um, so that's what he called his religionless Christianity. Part of the reason I thought it necessary to do this, or I found it would be a good time to do this, is because Dietrich Bonhoeffer, even though he was a dyed-in-the-wool Lutheran denominational pastor, worked in the institution, he's getting, his legacy is being claimed by fundamentalists and evangelicals as if he's one of them. And he was clearly not one of them, and his theology and his beliefs are, do not line up with modern evangelicalism. But, for example, just to give you a little anecdote, uh, my wife is from Colorado Springs, so we would go to Colorado Springs every winter at, right after Christmas, and we'd hang out with her mom and visit her family. And it would be cold, right? Some winters it would be very cold. So what do you do with little kids in the middle of winter when it's really cold? Well, you can play outside for a little bit. My kids are Arizonans. They weren't very good at that. Uh, you know, they didn't last long, let's say. Uh, so there's one 
place in Colorado Springs that has a heated indoor playground. It's the Focus on the Family headquarters, the ultra right-wing uh, James Dobson anti-gay Focus on the Family. And while as much as I felt like I'd almost be theologically contaminated by going there, I really needed to have my kids get out of the house. So uh, we went there and of course while they're playing, uh, I mean and it's a nice playground, it's got like a two-story slide you can go down. Um, so while my kids are playing, I snuck up to their bookstore. There's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I'm like, holy mackerel, uh, how far it's come. Well, how come Focus on the Family feels like Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of them uh, and not another one of those liberal mainline types? There's a couple reasons. One is simply a mistake of words, which is that in Germany, the Lutheran churches aren't called Lutheran. They're called evangelical. It's the Evangelische Kirche. And evangelical is actually what Lutherans were called. Lutheran was a nickname that was added later. So he, he was ordained in the evangelical church, but it has nothing to do with Ted Haggard or Jerry Falwell or these guys. It's, it's about, um, that's just the word they call it. And so, so, first of all, he had the word evangelical and he uses it a lot, but he uses it in a different way. So if somebody's not really paying attention, it'll look like, oh, he's trying to reclaim evangelical Christianity. But what it meant in 1930s and 40s Germany was totally different than today. The other thing is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, particularly when he came to the US, encountered what was called classical liberalism or classical liberal theology. And that was real common in mainline Protestant circles and particularly on the Upper West Side of New York where Rockefeller Chapel was and um, what was his name? Harry, Harry Emerson Fosdick was preaching and classical, classical liberalism, which again is different from modern liberalism, was very much about progress and we're going to build the kingdom of God here and it was very oriented around we're going to build the kingdom through social programs. There was a lot of good about it you know, the idea that it's not just about personal salvation, but that salvation has something to do with our world. Uh, we can't tell somebody they're saved and then let them starve, you know, which makes good, perfectly good sense to me. But what had happened is classical liberal theology, which had also become very common in Germany at, at the time, it didn't have much to say for the individual and the individual's conscience, and it didn't have any sort of doctrinal basis. It got real kind of relativistic, and so... Bonhoeffer often felt like classical liberals didn't have sort of that conviction to stand up against tyranny. And so modern evangelicals have refashioned Bonhoeffer as the evangelical conservative fighting against liberals who've sold out to the big government. And all those, that whole paradigm is just, it's not there. You're, you're sort of imposing a modern idea on a, a almost 100-year-old uh, issue. So there's a lot of transposing and so I think Bonhoeffer needs to be reclaimed in essence for who he is because his religionless Christianity absolutely would never sell with Ted Haggard and Jerry Falwell. Uh, so I thought I'd go that. But again, we're at the end of his life. So you know how it sometimes is when you get to the end of your life and you've spent your career really studying stuff and now you, you're, you're looking back and going, hmm, and I think he's at the point where he's really looking back on his life and his teachings. What does it mean? What has it meant? Uh, what has been the legacy? 
and he's really sort of having this reflection. And his religionless Christianity, he never really articulates exactly what it is, which I also think is part of why it'd be a fun kind of streaming series. It raises more questions than it gives answers. At one point, he even outlines his book. He says to Eberhard Wettke, he's like, I'm going to write a book, and this is going to be the chapters. And he actually gives an outline, point for point, how it, chapters. Well, the, it was going to be kind of his magnum opus. It doesn't get written. He gets hung with piano wire before that happens. So um, he never finishes it. But I look back as I'm reading through this, and I'm like, you know, a lot of these questions he's asking are still really relevant questions. And I always think it's good for us as Christians to be reflective, uh, to be honest and sort of self-reflective and look at ourselves. What do we believe? What has been the outcome of our faith? You know, um, what is the outcome of our preaching? Do people end up being more loving, more compassionate? Do they have, are they more conscientious against uh, fascism, tyranny, these kind of things after listening to our sermons every week? Does it make a difference? I think it's good to ask these questions not from the perspective of a hater who's trying to sort of debunk it and show, yeah, religion, people are all stupid, and religion makes everything worse, or something like Hitching says, right? Bonhoeffer was a guy who woke up and poured through his Bible and theological books every morning. This guy's a diehard believer, right? He's not, he's not coming to this from the perspective of wanting to attack the church, but of being, doing an honest evaluation. Uh, so, as I go through this, what I'm going to do is I'll show you some snippets. And I typed up some snippets. You, you'll see. We'll read through them. And I'll give you kind of my commentary, maybe like I would on a Bible text. Some commentary, a little bit of explanation on some of the words and concepts. They are critical of church and religion, but I don't do that because, again, I'm trying to attack the church. I love the church. You know, it's my life. Um, but I want the church to you know, do well in a scientific world uh, after World War II with a lot of very skeptical people. And um, so that's my intro. All right, without further ado then, um, oh, just one more point. I do encourage you, I'm not going to give you every detail of his life. I do encourage you go out and get a biography of Bonhoeffer. I think you'll love his, uh, his story is really fascinating. You know, uh, so, so many people sold out to Hitler in Germany. He stood up and yeah, he paid for it. Don't read the biography by Eric Metaxas. He is one of these event, he, he's one of these revisionist historians. It's his, it's his version that's in the Focus on the Family Library. And I say don't read his version because he, and I did read it, he works really hard to make Bonhoeffer into a modern American evangelical, and he just isn't. Um, so there's plenty of other good books that tells this fascinating story of his life. And you can read some of his other writings, Cost of Discipleship. Uh, read that, you will feel like you are the weakest, wussiest, sold-out Christian in the world when you read Cost of Discipleship. It's very convicting. I did a book study on it a while back. So, all right, let's, shall we get, let's get into the text here. Um, I'll move over, we'll get the camera adjusted, and um, we can uh, uh, look at, like I say, I will read through a little snippet for you and then just kind of give you my thoughts. And again, they are just, they're just my thoughts. They aren't official anybody's thoughts. I'm not a Bonhoeffer scholar. I'm a parish pastor who hopes that this stuff will be uh, enlightening and helpful. So, all right, here we go. Well, we'll start on page 279 to 280. So you can see it already takes a while to get in here. 
the topic heading is just, I added that. So here it goes. What is bothering me incessantly is the question what Christianity really is, or indeed who Christ really is for us today. The time when people could be told everything by means of words, whether theological or pious, is over. And so is the time of inwardness and conscience. And that means the time of religion in general. We are moving toward a completely religionless time. People as they are now simply cannot be religious anymore. Even those who honestly describe themselves as religious do not in the least act up to it. And so they presumably mean something quite different by religion. All right, lots to, lots of to unpack here. So you can see he's, he, he, he's sharing with his friend his frustration. Um, and he's asking, what, you know, what Christianity really is. You know, 2,000 years, lots of things get added, lots of interpretations, things get added. So what is it really for us today? Okay, the time when people could be told by means of words. So I'm, I'm assuming what he means by that is that, you, you know, the era when a pastor, a professor with a credential could stand up front and simply speak and the people would say, oh, this person is a credentialed part of the church. This person must be trustable. This person must be believable. I should listen to what this person says as a person of authority and I will take seriously what, you know, they say. Um, we know that era is long gone, right? We know that I can tell people I'm a pastor, it doesn't carry squat for authority. Uh, with many people, it will induce the exact opposite reaction, right? They'll be more suspicious, more nervous. Um, but that was how it was. You know, his Germany, the Germany he's coming out of, of course, has a long history of a very high view of authority, right? And what did that high view of authority get the Germans? Uh, a person who stepped into that authority uh, and did horrible things. But that's, that's, that's a long tradition, right? And so he's saying the era when you can just stand up there and talk and people will listen, it's gone, right? I know that as a pastor, I get up front. A large part of my job isn't to sort of command with authority, but it's persuasion, right? If I, if I, if I think you should believe in this particular interpretation, I need to show it. So when I go through the sermon, I got to say, okay, if this is what, I, it's what it is, I got to demonstrate it. I usually have to give an anecdote, right? A relevant example that demonstrates the point so that at the end of the day, you know, you, you've been persuaded of the truth of it. But it isn't the truth just because I say so. Uh, and so that part of religion is gone. That sense of authority is gone. Uh, and so there he goes, words, whether theological or pious, Right? So whether you're an expert uh, at scripture and Greek or whether you're an expert at prayer, right? it still doesn't sell. It doesn't have the authority. It's over. Um, and then the next line confuses me a little bit, I'll admit. So is the time of inwardness and conscience. So is he talking about sort of the just me and Jesus stuff that my seminary, my seminary professors were always, uh, that, that was the ultimate slam on any sort of uh, prayer method or church growth method. If it, it, all, you, all you would have to do is say, oh, that sounds like they're just teaching me and Jesus, 
and then immediately the discussion was over because the assumption is, well, if you're just teaching me in Jesus, you're not teaching about combating injustice and oppression and, and, and you know, changing the world. And I get where they're coming from. It's a bit of a reaction, but there's enough church out, churches out there and there's enough you know, historic Christianity that really just does teach that all that really matters is whether you as an individual are saved when you die and whether you act, uh, you know, whether you can maintain that faith and that salvation through your life. And that's really all that matters. What happens in the economy is just up to the economy. Uh, and what happens in the government is, is out of our control. It's just me and Jesus, right? So there is a negative aspect of it. They're reacting against it. The truth is they aren't opposite things. They're not opposed to each other. Uh, they don't have to be opposed. You can sit down and pray and do meditation and uh, go down to the shelter or and go down and run a protest. You can do both of those. Um, but often in our own lives, we tend to gravitate towards one or the other, right? Because we're human beings. We swing one, one side reacts against the other. And, um, and of course, conscience, that's kind of the new New Age buzzword. You know, I hear the word, somebody talk about, we need to have a, be, be conscience. You know, conscience, uh, uh, what? I, I hear Eckhart Tolle going, we need a God consciousness, you know? And maybe I'm imposing things, but the idea of just some sort of spiritual awareness being sufficient for our lives, I think Bonhoeffer's pointing out that that just isn't selling. Uh, interesting thing was he wrote this 20 years, some years before all the hippies would be out at Esalen Center finding their, their God consciences. But, um, you know, that idea is still out there, that simply a spiritual awareness is sufficient. He's saying, no, it's not. We need to both act and we need to discover who Christ is. Okay. And the time, all right. We are moving towards a religionless time. You know, it's interesting he said that. Uh, there's sort of a phrase they, they talk about in churches that trends that what happens in Europe in church trends hits the U.S. like 20, 30 years later, that we're kind of on a lag. That, and um, Europe has had low church attendance and low church participation and high rates of atheism long before the U.S. is. We're, we're catching up with Europe now. We are now where Europe was and when Europe was in the 60s. Uh, you know, And um, now you go to Germany and church attendance is what, 1% or something like that. It's very low. The U.S. is at like 20, but when you do the demographics, uh, that 20 is skewed really high in the 65 and older bracket. So we're kind of catching up with where Europe was, but he's saying that, you know, this is already happening. Uh, we're moving towards a religionless time. They can't be, they simply can't be religious anymore. They can't accept the authority. And I think there's also a philosophical issue, right? In a world uh, you know, of scientific stuff, Einstein's already been proposing relativity and these things by this time. So you're already getting Enlightenment philosophers questioning the objective existence of God. So you, from an intellectual perspective, God's becoming harder to believe. From a practical perspective, people are questioning the results of it and going, eh, right? And then, of course, he gets to the end. Those who describe themselves are religious don't live up to it. Ooh. So, you know, I think he's talking about his fellow German Christians who sold out, right? They say they're Christian, but there isn't anything in their lives that seems to be particularly special about the way they live. Um, and so what they mean by religion is something different than probably what Jesus was. All right, let's keep going.
We'll keep going here. We'll go to the next slide. He writes, Our whole 1900-year-old Christian preaching and theology rest on the religious a priori of mankind. Christianity has always been a form, perhaps the true form, of religion. But if one day it becomes clear that this a priori does not exist at all, but was a historically conditioned and transient form of human self-expression, and if therefore man becomes radically religionless, and I think that that is already more or less the case, Else, how is it, for example, that this war, in contrast to all previous ones, is not calling forth any religious reaction? What does that mean for Christianity? It means that the foundation is taken away from the whole of what has up to now been our Christianity, and there remain only a few last survivors of the age of chivalry, or a few intellectually dishonest people, on whom we can descend as religious. Again, you could, there, there's, boy, there's some, there's a little, a few knives coming out there, right? There's some biting stuff. Okay, we'll backtrack here. Religious a priori. Okay, a priori. If you study theology, you can, or philosophy, I'm sorry, you can hardly get through 10 pages without somebody talking about an a priori this and an a priori that, right? Uh, Immanuel Kant spent his entire career trying to discover what were the a priori's. What does that mean? Just think prior. That's the easiest way to understand a priori. It comes prior. It's, it's an assumed, but not something that's consciously assumed. It's assumed in the way we think, in the way we operate. Uh, and so when we go to make a a discourse, when we go to make an argument, we're basing it on things and assumptions we might not even be aware of. So Kant is going to go and show us the, what he sees as the a priori's, and, and Husserl will expose the a priori's and these kind of things. Um, there's a library's full of it. Um, and it's a good exercise to do. And so what he's saying is everything we've been doing has been resting on a religious a priori. So an assumption of, of religion. We, Christianity built itself on an assumption of religion. And so what is, what is that religious a priori? Well, first of all, the very fact, well, how do I put it? Let me back. Think of it in terms of like a culture. You know, some cultures you go to, and in the West these days, I think in particular, uh, being religious, going to church, believing in God are not normal assumptions in the culture. It has become such in America now that if you do believe, you are outside the norm. The culture assumes that there is no God or if God exists, it doesn't make any difference. And that's the new a priori. And he's coming from a world, you know, in Germany, again, many years earlier, where that's already happening, where we don't assume the beliefs of religion. We don't assume the practices of religion. It's like, let me give you another example. A poll was taken, and I don't remember who did this or read this, but they went around the world asking, can you be a good ethical person without belief in God? And of course, when they went to, you know, Sweden, France, New York City, you know, 90 plus percent, oh, you don't need God to be a good person. They went to Egypt, Oh yeah, 98%, you need God to be a good person. In Egypt, there is still a religious a priori. 
Religion is in your school, it's in your culture, it's in your buildings, it's, it's in your laws, it's in your government, it's everywhere, it permeates everything. It's the clothes you wear, the food you eat. Every single part of your life is ordered and structured in some way by religion. And I don't necessarily mean that in sort of an oppressive, stifling way, but just that it is an assumption. So it would be perfectly natural to assume in Egypt that, yes, obviously you need to believe in God to be a good person. That's the religious a priori. And my guess is if you would have gone back to Germany before the 30s, you would have gotten a really high percentage of people who assumed that obviously you're, you need God to be a good person. Obviously, you go to church every week. Obviously, Jesus is the Son of God. And obviously, we open our Bibles and pray, and pray all the time. That's just the natural part of life, right? We assume these things. Those are, what he's saying is that's gone. And so churches, it used to be kind of, it used to be easy to do church, as we used to joke in Lutheran circles, that uh, it was easy to do church because people came to you. You just had to open the door. That was sort of the joke about old church planters, you know, that you, you'd run into these retired pastors who planted a church in the 60s and 70s, and they would go, oh, I know all about church planting. I planted a church back then, and we would laugh. Oh, yeah, yeah, so you bought a piece of land and put a sign on it. Um, because it really was that easy in the 60s and even into the mid-70s to plant a mainline church. You know, there, it was so many people just naturally assumed that that was something that they would do in their lives that you just had to kind of offer, you had to catch them. The demand was there, right? The demand was automatically there. You just had to provide a place for them to go. And they might switch back and forth. They may not like this pastor or, you know, but it was still an assumption of religion. Now you go to plant a church, you know, every, every 90% or whatever the people you run into are like, oh, I don't know what I think about organized religion. It's like, oh, so now I need to get people together and get a building and get an organized and do all these things to plant a church. But most of the people don't even, aren't even certain God even exists. The, the foundation is gone right? The foundation is gone. And he will literally use that, uh, right? He'll use that later on. He said it means that the foundation is taken away from the whole. The foundation is taken away from the whole. So the way to kind of understand how Bonhoeffer views the state of the church at his time is a little bit like if you had a house. My house is on a slab. Uh, so Arizona houses make a good analogy for this, you know. Um, my house is on a slab. If you were to have some sort of magic teleporting device, you know, like on Star Trek, and you could beam the foundation away, whatever they do, right? Um, what would happen? The house wouldn't instantaneously crumble. It would probably settle and go, Kunk, right? And there'd be cracks that would form, and, you know, but the ground's still somewhat hard, and this thing is probably pretty sturdy built, so it would sit there. You could continue to live in it for a while. There'd be problems, you'd have to fix things. What do you do about the plumbing? These kind of stuff, things. But the overall structure would not immediately collapse, but it's not on a foundation. And without that foundation, what's gonna happen over time? It's gonna start eroding, right? You know, you're gonna have water issues when it goes by. You're gonna have termite issues, it's Arizona, right? They're always trying to eat, your, eat the termite, eat the you know, lumber in your house. Um, and then it'll crack a little bit more and it'll settle a little bit more and then you can keep patching and patching and patching and it cracks a little bit more. That's not a permanent solution, right? 
The permanent solution is to get a new foundation or get a new house. But simply patching and patching the old one because you're attached to it or this is all you know or you can't imagine being out of that house, I think that's what he's talking about here. You have to picture sort of the, and he's not talking necessarily just about the institutional church, but just the ideas that there is a God and obviously we pray and there's a heaven and Jesus died for sins and all this kind of stuff. It's a foundation that we're built on. The assumption that obviously you will take your kids to church and teach them values, you know, um, that foundation is gone. It doesn't mean there aren't a lot of people who were raised in the old way, who, uh, who were raised in the old way, who still very much believe in it. I mean, I'm one of those, right? But they're not, they're, they're, that's sort of living on borrowed time, right? They, they came to faith in a previous era. Um, who's coming to faith in the new era, right? So that's where you get this sort of thing he says towards the end there. Um, and, there may remain, and there remain only a few last survivors of the age of chivalry. I've been reading through Don Quixote. That's all I can think of when I saw that line is Don Quixote, right? E even in the 16-whatever, you know, when they wrote this book, um, already chivalry, knights, all that stuff is fading away. You know, people aren't fighting with, you know, pikes anymore. They're already using muskets and all sorts of things. Um, the whole notion of chivalry is dying away, but this one guy's clinging to it and he's going to prove how great it is rather than just adapt to a new world, right? Well, and of course, Don Quixote's kind of crazy, which is part of the point too. But, you know, I read this, I was like, ooh, that's really biting. I mean, are you saying that I'm just an antiquated relic? Are you saying that those of us who have faith only have faith because, you know, we grew up in another world? Not necessarily. Um, there are plenty of people who still come to faith today. It's just that coming to faith today is going to look different because you're building on a different foundation. And so if you're going to try to plant a new church today that isn't just pilfering members from all the other churches around, which is what I see too often. We have a, we at, you know, Synergy Church, we're rebuilding Christianity without all that religion stuff. And I'm hearing, oh, so what you're doing is you're a fundamentalist with the same fundamentalist doctrines that you've always had. You're just not wearing a robe and doing communion and using an organ and singing a hymn and wearing a collar. I mean, that, that's what I hear. What I, because your beliefs are exactly the same beliefs as you had before, right? You, you haven't changed your stance on substitutionary atonement or gay marriage. You're just repackaging yourself, right? You're, you're, and so you're going to pull people away by packaging better. You pull them away from other churches and say that you're renewing Christianity. Um, the places I see that are more authentically Christian of this time, and I mean that sort of like Christians grown from our postmodern kind of world, those churches tend to be smaller. You kind of find them, they're experimental. Um, I had one myself that I did for several years. It was hard to get going, right? It was, a, I realized, you know, it was, it's a lot easier to try to get your numbers up when the people you're reaching al already believe that it's important to go to church. When you're reaching people who aren't convinced that at all, you've got a lot of work to do. And what you create doesn't end up looking like what you had, um, you know, 
even the, down to the way you worship or the way you speak or all these things. Um, so I think as churches, the critique here is don't spend, <laughs> don't spend all your time and energy as a church simply trying to recreate the last age of chivalry, right? Don't try to recreate the old way. Uh, religionless Christianity is going to be religion without the religious a priori. So there you got your big word today, um, a priori. All right, let's keep going. Let's go to the next one here, uh, the next slide. Are they the chosen few? Is it on this dubious group of people that we are to pounce in fervor, pique, or indignation in order to sell them our goods? Are we to fall upon a few unfortunate people in their hour of need and exercise some sort of religious compulsion on them? If we don't want to do all that, if our final judgment must be that the Western form of Christianity too was only a preliminary stage to a complete absence of religion, what kind of situation emerges for us, for the church? How can Christ become the Lord of the religionless as well? Are there religionless Christians? If religion is only a garment of Christianity, and even this garment has looked very different at different times, then what is a religionless Christianity? Don't you wish it'd be, wouldn't it be so much easier if he just told you the answer, right? But he's exploring, right? And I think that's kind of the, the, the that's, that's part of what you do in this modern age. You know, in the old age, you had all the answers. It was wrapped up in a bow. Your theologians had solved all the problems you know, you could say the Bible was inerrant and have an explanation for Joshua making the sun stand still. You could, you could tidy it all up, wrap it in a bow and go, here's what you believe, and then, you know, send a charismatic young guy with ripped jeans and frosted tipped hair and an untucked shirt up to the front um, and a really good band, and you could convince those people uh, of the old beliefs that the scientific world no longer could hold as true. There was a time you could do that. Are, are they the chosen few, the last of the age of chivalry? Um, and I think here, again, he's being very critical, but what he's pointing out, some people definitely do do. Uh, the idea of finding the unfortunate people in their hour of need, uh, I'm reminded, when, when I read that, I was reminded of when I was a kid uh, in our small town in Minnesota, there was a, uh, there was a fundamentalist pastor, and he uh, would go to the local hospital and he would go just walk down the halls going door to door to find people who didn't go to his particular church. He particularly wanted to target Catholics and mainliners, so Lutherans, Methodists, Episcopalians, Orthodox. Uh, we had some Orthodox in our community and he, he, because he believed that they weren't really saved. Um, they weren't really saved. They hadn't accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Uh, and being baptized and participating in a Catholic or mainline church, you know, you, your salvation was still at stake. You know, the Satan worshiper and the every Sunday Catholic and his mind were no different. They were all going to hell anyways. And so he had a moral obligation to save your soul. And so what you would hear is my dad, he is a minister, you'd find out there's someone in the church was getting visited by this guy. So he would just walk up to the bed. First, he's really nice and slick and he's charming and he's friendly and oh, and he's listening really well. And you know, these people are vulnerable, they're sick. Some of them are older and lonely. And here this guy comes and he showers them with attention, makes them feel so good about themselves. And then he starts dropping in the doubt. Are you sure you're saved? 
And the, you know, some 80-year-old Catholic guy's going, well, yeah, I was baptized. But are you saved? Are you saved? Are you sure? You know, because if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ, I mean, you can be baptized, but unless you've accepted Jesus Christ, well, I don't want to I, I don't want to go to hell. I mean, I guess I never said those words. Oh, you know, and so what he would do is he's extracting second baptisms and deathbed confessions out of sick people in the hospital. Now, this, of course, was before HIPAA, right? So what would happen then is they started, people started calling him and yelling at him. You can't do this. Get out of here. And then the hospital tried getting rid of him. Well, then he would go and he would look at the, um, the roster of who was in the hospital. And he'd look at the names of all the people in the hospital. Um, and you could do that. My grandpa, he was pastor. He just went to the hospital and just opened the roster and said, oh, there's where my members are, and went and visited them. HIPAA, obviously, you cannot do that, right? Uh, this is pre-HIPAA. So then the Catholic, the priests, and everyone else complained. So then the uh, hospital decided to hide the roster. They said, okay, we're not going to show you the roster. We're only going to show you the list of people who, go, who sign up and say they go to your particular church. And um, uh, so then he'd come up to the staff people who worked in the hospital who went to his church. And he'd say, you know, I know it's against the rules, but, you know, we need that. We, we, I need that list because they're going to go to hell. I know it's against the rules, but you don't want them to go to hell, do you? So then his staff people would secretly sneak him the books until that got caught. Um, and then they had to develop protocols about the books. And, you know, I just thought... You know, even I had classmates who were atheists. Why aren't you working on them? Why don't you go visit them, shower them with attention? But, you know, 18-year-old smug atheist young men are a lot harder to get to convert to your particular church than an 80-year-old believer who assumes a religious a priori, right? It's easier to pounce on them in their hour of need give them just enough service to extract that confession. But there's a real dishonesty and a real manipulation to that. Um, it is a good thing to visit people in their hour of need. It is a bad thing to use that as an opportunity to get stuff, right? Um, you know, if you're trying to persuade people to change, that persuasion should be with a clear heart and a clear mind when they know what they're doing. Um, and so there's something really dishonest about that. He says, is that, is that what we're supposed to be doing? Apparently, they must have had colleagues who, felt like, who really tried tactics like that. Um, you know, if, if that's it, then boy, we're going to be judged, right? There will be a judgment on the Western form of Christianity. Uh, and then I'll end this passage here. Uh, if religion is just a garment, is it just a garment? So, and he's proposing this. He isn't saying it definitely is a garment, if it's a garment. But if it's the case that sort of all these beliefs, all these cultural assumptions, all the cultural baggage that works in our favor and doesn't work in our favor, if all that is just, uh, if all that's a garment, then in theory, there's a real truth underneath there that you could put a different garment on. So it's both a foundation and a garment, right? And again, don't be fooled by those who teach a rigid 19th century theology and say, oh, we're giving up the garment of Christianity uh, just because they are getting rid of an altar and robes. You know, that isn't what Bonhoeffer's talking about. That's, that's, uh, that's window dressing, right? He's digging at something way deeper. Okay. 
Let's do just a couple more quick and then we'll wrap this up. Um, Bart, Bart, Karl Bart, theologian, who is the only one to have started along this line of thought, did not carry it to completion, but arrived at a positivism of, reg of revelation, which in the last analysis is essentially a restoration. For the religionless working man, or any other man, nothing decisive is gained here. The question to be answered would surely be, what do a church, a community, a sermon, a liturgy, a Christian life mean in a religionless world? How do we speak of God without religion? Without the temporally conditioned presuppositions of metaphysics, inwardness, and so on. How do we speak, or perhaps we cannot now even speak as we used to, in a secular way about God? In what way are we religionless, secular Christians? In what way are we the ecclesia, those who, have, those who are called forth, not regarding ourselves from a religious point of view as specially favored, but rather as belonging wholly to the world? Whew, they're, 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 he's throwing out some big theology stuff here. I'll try to unpack it, make it not so heady. But yeah, Karl Barth wrote a big, gigantic series of books called Dogmatics, and it borders on apologetics. If you're a Barth professor, don't, don't immediately run into the comments and go, that isn't Barth at all, he... But that's essentially what Bonhoeffer's kind of, kind of hinting at or kind of accusing uh, Bart of doing is that at the end of the day, he's still not letting go of the foundation. He's, he's trying to reclaim or rebuild it or refashion it or re-something it, but he's still staying on the foundation, right? His positivism of revelation. So Bart comes down at the end and sort of argues that there is an objectively true revelation. And Bonhoeffer says, really all you're doing is just reasserting what was before. Uh, and so, for the religionless working man, ah, here we go, Diet, you know, uh, uh, Dieter the plumber. Dieter the plumber is not impressed by Bart. Can't be Joe the plumber, because he's in Germany, right? We'll call him Dieter. Um, so, the question, you know, the, the question of everything is what does Christian life mean in a religionless world? So we have to try to explain Jesus' life, Jesus' teachings, and what it means to be a Christian but we can't, when we speak in those ways, use assumptions like, well, yeah, he was the Lamb of God who died for our sins. You know, a phrase like that means nothing in a secular world. Or if anything, it means, you know, what? He's, so you think he's an animal that was killed? Or, you know, it, it, you, you, we come with a religious a priori, but we don't know how to talk about it in non-religious terms. And it's a struggle. Right? It's a struggle because everything we've ever known and everything we've always been, we've built has always assumed all sorts of things. What do you do when you take away the assumption, but you still believe that what Jesus is saying and teaching really has a value? And he asks the question. He doesn't answer exactly what it looks like. He just says, what does it look like? How do you speak of God without religion? Ooh, and then he gets into metaphysics, right? So how can you speak of God if you don't use words like infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent, uh, impassable. They got all these big words that medieval theologians used to ascribe to God. God must be impassable and unmoving and unchanging and, you know, and uh, it looks an awful lot like Aristotle's unmoved mover to a lot of us. Um, 
And I think to Aquinas, God was an awful lot like the unmoved mover. You know, the thing that doesn't do anything but causes everything else, uh, that was kind of that idea. Again, if you're an Aristotle scholar, don't get on the comments and say, Lars, you're oversimplifying the unmoved mover. Yes, I am. I know I am. All right. But how do you speak if you can't do that? Um, you know, in what way are we religionless secular Christians? I don't know. You know, in which way are we the ecclesia, the people gathered together, called forth? I mean, ecclesia just means out called, ecclesia. Um, and, uh, and not regarding ourselves from a religious point of view as specially favored. Ooh, you know, we don't think we're better than anybody else. You know, I, I always do wonder a little bit, and I spent a couple years in Sweden, which is hella secular, um, and uh, I mean, to the point where, you know, I would be in class and my classmates, my like fourth, fifth grade classmates would look at me like, why do you go to church? I'm going to heaven. If you're going to heaven, why do you need to go to church? To be told over and over that you're going to heaven? Well, isn't it good enough to hear it once? I mean, it's just actually practicing your faith just seemed like the most nonsensical thing in the world. And I'm like, part of me is upset that because Christianity has taught that for too much has taught and too often that getting into heaven is the only thing. So the Swedes sort of figured, well, I got my baptism and, you know, I don't really believe in hell. So that essentially made, they put themselves out of business. <laughs> um, but that's, that's how secular it is over there, right? I was listening to a podcast, a Norwegian guy, and he lost his uh, he lost his lover, and he said, you know, I'm not religious. I don't believe that he's sitting on a cloud watching me now. And I was like, wait, that's all you think it is? Um, he's being dismissive and flippant, but how many people actually do believe that, right? Um, and so, but I will say this, that having seen very secular, I have found that if there is no practice if there's no community, if there's no participation, if there's no actual actions that you follow or routines that you have or rituals or any community that you're connected with, it quick, religionless Christianity quickly becomes just liberal secular humanism and becomes no Christianity. And that line, that line becomes really gray uh, and it gets real easy to cross into I'm just a good person, I've done enough. And so that's always sort of my critique of this religionless Christianity is that it becomes the first footstep into no Christianity because you know that people who do continue to follow the practices of the religious a priori, who have the assumptions, who have those practices, do tend to be more involved. Right? They do tend to practice more. And some would say, well, that's because they, pra they, they practice more because they believe the old way, or is it they believe because they practice more? You know, um, So I think there's a danger to that that Bonhoeffer isn't worried about. Bonhoeffer is in a state church. And in a state church like they have in Europe, the church doesn't get its money by passing an offering plate or putting a box in the back or, or doing a stewardship drive, uh, they get their money through the government. The government goes and collects taxes. And so you're a member of the church just by being a member of the country. And so this is something that the idea of discipleship becomes absolutely nothing. Uh, when I lived in Sweden, the church council elections were by political party. 
So, you know, the moderates would vote for moderate people for the church council, and the social democrats would vote for social democrats for the council, and the church council would be broken up by political party, and there was a communist, I think his name was Lars, actually, um, his stated goal was to destroy organized religion from within. And so the Swedish Communist Party all came out to vote for their candidate to get the voice of atheism and Marxism on the church council. And, you know, as Americans, we were like, wait, you don't have to even show that you have discipleship in Christ? No, because the church is a national possession, you know, viewed kind of the way, you know, we view national parks, you know, or public schools or something like that. Uh, and so, you know, for Bonhoeffer, it's real easy in that kind of a world to not, to not see any difference between just being a secular person and being a Christian. And so whatever then becomes the views of the nation state can quickly become your views too. And there isn't a way to criticize them because they're never seen as different. And that was one of the big things that happened in Germany, right? And that was one of his critiques of classical liberalism is there, there isn't an individual faith and an individual practice that's different from the state. Now we don't live in a state church, right? We, our churches have been voluntary and I think that's part of why American religion has been more active than Europe is because we don't have the state to rely on. So yes, people may quit coming to your church, but the people who come to your church tend to be much more active and involved in it because there's ownership. And if there isn't, you just close. In Sweden, in Germany, if nobody comes to your church, well, it doesn't matter. Um, pastor gets paid anyways. If zero people attend worship, pastor still gets paid, organist gets paid, uh, choir director gets paid, everybody goes home and collects a paycheck. Um, and I'll leave you with just one story. I, I knew a Swedish guy who was a very faithful Christian. He said he was traveling one time and went and visited this church out on the island of Gotland. It's way out in the uh, Baltic. And he said he showed up with his wife and they showed up in the church and the pastor was standing, was sitting in the back drinking coffee with the organist. They hadn't had anyone show up in uh, like weeks. So they, he planned his sermons and just put them all in a file for the day of the church year and then just pulled them out year after year because usually nobody came and he was so used to nobody coming but he was paid to be there on Sunday morning so he'd sit there on Sunday morning sipping and so then the guy and his wife showed up and the pastor and the organist were all excited there's people here there's people here so then he ran up front and they played all the hymns and the guy was like so me and my wife were like two people and we're singing every hymn and doing every part of the service because it was so happy people came um, I think most Swedish churches have more than zero people. They maybe have a dozen or something like that that might show up. It's still not a ton. But again, because there's no difference between your religion and your state, when the state says something, it quickly becomes what your religion says. And that's a dynamic that clearly played out in Germany in the 30s and 40s. There was no distinction between being a Christian and being a German. And Hitler figured out real quickly that he could manipulate that. Well, you know, if being a Christian is German, then I define what's German, so I get to define what's Christian, and, you know, and everyone fell in line. All right, let's, one last slide, and we'll, uh, that will be all we will do today. Uh, in that case, Christ is no longer an object of religion, but something quite different, really the Lord of the world. But what does that mean? What is the place of worship and prayer in a religionless situation? Does the secret discipline, or alternatively the difference, which I have suggested to you before, 
between penultimate and ultimate take on a new importance here. Okay, we'll skip the ultimate stuff. That goes back to a previous letter. But um, just think about that line. Christ is no longer an object of religion. He's not an object, not something that, that, that we look to, but is something that is a part of the world, not something separate from the world. And even Bonhoeffer doesn't know exactly what that means. What does that mean? What does that look like? He never fleshes out what it looks like, right? What is the place of worship and prayer? Ah, see, I ask that same question. What is the place of worship and prayer in a religionless world? It's not the same as it was before. It's not to convey, not for a person with authority to speak truths that are reinforced through rituals. Um, it is going to be, I think, a lot more about personal experience. I think it's going to be a lot more about personal encounter with God. And I think that worship and prayer is going to facilitate much more the individual's personal experience and the community's action. Uh, but again, I don't even know exactly what that means or what that looks like. And I don't think any of us do. But what's kind of cool is that this is the stuff Bonhoeffer was already asking. This is the stuff Bonhoeffer was throwing out in 1940. I can't remember the date. Is it four? Are we already up to 44 when he's writing this letter? I mean, literally, he dies within weeks of the Allies taking his prison. If he could have just somehow held on a little bit longer, um, you know, he would have, he would have been around. Uh, but then again, his, uh, his teachings wouldn't have been seen as powerful if he was just another professor, right? So lots of questions, questions to ask. I think that's the important thing. He's trying to ask questions here and get us to ask questions and rethink, uh, rethink what Christianity looks like without that old foundation. Uh, so, okay, put my notes aside. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, let's, well, we sw I'll switch over to full screen here. Uh, but thank you all for tuning in. And I'll be back next week. We'll look some more at uh, speaking of God. It's going to be Deep Bonhoeffer's thing next week. We'll look at speaking of God. I would love to hear your questions and comments as long as you're not a troll. Um, and um, if you engage in discussion, I've, I would love to have an in-person study group to look at some of these things in more depth. Uh, to have some back and forth rather than as much monologue as this is. So let me know if you're interested in something like that. Uh, but otherwise, uh, I, I hope this has been helpful for you uh, and some good questions, some things to think about for our faith and our life as Christians. And I'll see you next week, then next Thursday, same time at 1030. God bless.